Hello. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon and welcome to our Dhamma session. So yesterday was Maga, Magapunami, the, the full moon of the month of Magga. Magha, which is a bit of a special day in Theravada Buddhism. The story goes that after the Buddha became enlightened and traveled to Uruvela, And he taught Uruvela Kasapa, Nadi Kasapa, and Gaya Kasapa. Three brothers and all of their students. Then he proceeded to Rajagaha and taught Bimbisara the king, and Bimbisara gave him a monastery in Velavana. And the monks stayed in Velavana and practiced intensive meditation with the Buddha. And on the full moon night of Magga, the Buddha was sitting under a tree. And one of the monks came to see him. There were 1,250 monks there, apparently. One of them came to see the Buddha with the intention of telling the Buddha that he had accomplished, attained the goal. But when he got there, he sat down and paid respect to the Buddha and turned and saw there was another monk coming. So he thought, well, I'll wait for this monk. And the second monk came and bowed down to the Buddha and sat down. And, and they saw another monk coming, and another, and another, and another. And one by one, all the monks came without any, any prior arrangement until there were 1,250 monks sitting at the Buddha's feet. As the story goes. And when they were all sitting there, the Buddha looked and saw all 1,250 of them had just become arahat, achieved the goal of the Buddha's teaching. They all had been ordained by the Buddha himself as well. And so the Buddha took this opportunity of the full moon to to teach what is now known as the Ovada Patimoka. Patimoka is like the exhortation for becoming free. It's a very famous teaching. And so on this day, it's generally the topic of a Dhamma talk. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about that. So the Awadapati Moka goes, Sabapapasa akaranang kusalasa upasampada sachitta pariyoda panangitang buddhana sasanang not doing any evil, being full of good, the purification of one's own mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. 
a very powerful statement, no? This is the teaching of all Buddhas. Three things. Do good. Don't do evil. Do good. And purify your mind. That's the first part of the teaching. The second part of the teaching, Kanti Paramang Tapo Patience is the highest austerity. Nibbanang Paramang Vadanti Buddha. The Buddhas say that Nibbana is the highest. Nahi papajito parupagati samanohoti parangvihe tayanto. One is not a recluse if one harms others, nor an ascetic if one acts against someone else. Harm someone else. It's the second part. The third part, Anupagahat, Anupavado, Anupagato, Patimoke, Jasangwaro, Matanyuta, Jabatas, Ming, Pantancha, Sayana, Sanang. Not reviling, insulting others, speaking harshly towards others, not harming others, restraint according to the rules of discipline, ethics, moderation in eating and dwelling in a secluded place. and working hard to cultivate higher states of mind. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. That's the Avada Patimoka. If you ever want to memorize a Pali chant, there's one for you. You can keep the Buddha's teaching alive because it's the heart, it's the summary that the Buddha for 20 years, he taught this every Two weeks, this is what they would teach until finally they switched. The Buddha said the monks should recite the monastic rules because it was important. But this set of verses may remained the Vadapati Mukha. So the first part is something that you hear a lot as Buddhists. You should hear a lot, and something we should know as a Buddhist. If you're interested in Buddhism or Buddhist practice, it's a very important one. It sort of summarizes things. Sabapapasa akaranang means not to do any evil things. That's sila. Kusalasa upasampada, becoming full of, of good, coming to fulfillment in regards to good things. That's dana. That's what we call dana in Buddhism. Dana means charity and goodness. And it can be charity, but it can also be doing good things like meditation as well. Well, it, you know, it generally means good deeds, good deeds of speech and action. And these two, not doing bad things and doing good things, not doing bad deeds and doing good deeds, is very common teaching in the world. What's kind of special about the Buddha's teaching is the emphasis on the third part, satchitta pariyodapanang, purification of one's own mind. Because it's necessary for the other two, really. Simply to teach people to do good and not do evil is, is insufficient. Because as long as your mind is tainted by biases and 
cravings, desires, aversions, fears, stresses, depression, doubt, confusion, ignorance, all sorts of arrogance, conceit, all of these things will do wonders for, to prevent you from doing good deeds and prevent you from abstaining from things you shouldn't abstain, you should abstain from. So those three are the dana sila. The third one is bhavana, dana sila bhavana. It's a good summary of the Buddha's teaching. The second part, kanti is a very special state. He puts kanti as the patience in a prime position in, in, the, in all the of all the teachings that could be given. Patience, where said patience is the highest form of austerity. A reminder that any kind of tapas, tapas is a, tapas literally means heat, but in the time of the Buddha it was used to describe ascetic practices, torturous practices that were meant to train the mind, wean the mind off of craving and attachment. But the Buddha tried all of those and found that they actually couldn't do much to wean, wean the mind off of its clingings and cravings and aversions. And he found that simple patience, the practice of mindfulness, facing things without reacting to them, the capacity, the ability to stay with something without judgment, That's austerity, all right. It's austere because of how torturous it is. It burns up the defilement in a way that no other self-torture could. But it is self-torture to have to face things you don't want to face. But because you're not, uh, you're not creating anything, it helps, it leads to letting go. Has a positive effect on the mind as opposed to creating aversion. When you observe something mindfully, when you have this capacity to face, to see clearly the things, uh, the objects of your experience without any judgment, tortures, it's torturous, but it's cleansing because there's no judgment and no reaction. It can also be very pleasant, but all in all, it force forces us to confront our judgments, our biases, our views and beliefs, our reactions to things. Nibbana is the highest, of course. Nowhere you can go in this world to escape suffering. No heaven, angel realms, the Brahma realms, no place on earth or under the ocean or up in space. You can't go to Mars and escape the problems of earth. You just bring them all with you. Only Nibbana is freedom from suffering. Nibbana is like the graduation from this school. A person who harms others, the Buddha said, is not a recluse, not a spiritual person. Once I had to remind a monk of this, he was abusing me quite harshly. And at one point he said something about, we're both monks. And I said, you're not a monk. He was, a, he was ordained as a monk. He said, you're not a monk. And he walked away. He came back later and he was accusing me of lying, basically. Of claiming that he wasn't something that he was. And I said, Look, I've got this verse right here. 
The Buddha said, you're not a monk if you abuse other people. Anupavado, anupaghato, not harming others, not abusing them. Being restrained by ethics. Moderation in eating, the Buddha, yoke, the Buddha raises this up quite often, more often than, than you might expect. Moderation in eating is an important part of the Buddhist teaching, more important than you think. Not because food has any special capacity, but because of the, the attachment to food. Food is the one medicine we can't do without. It's the one medicine every human being has to take every day before else they die of this sickness that is hunger and the sickness that, that inherent in us. There's no cure for hunger. There's only medicine, that you, medication that you take to placate it, to reduce the symptoms temporarily, and then it comes back. And because we have to take this medicine, it's easily as a, an object or a basis for abuse. Over time, we develop from the time we're born, we develop aversions and attachment addictions to food deeper than you might think. You know, people freak out when they aren't able to get food or get the right food. Very, can be very much suffering for people when you don't get the food you want for an extended period of time. We get attached to food. So it's an important thing to moderate, to remind ourselves to use it as a, as a medicine. Pantancha sayanasanang, to find a secluded place to live. Don't, don't live in society and the hustle bustle of the chaos of the human world. You can't control your interactions with others, so if you put yourself in a position where you're going to be involved with many people, you're going to constantly be assaulted by enticements and incitements. You're going to be incited and enticed to crave for things, to manipulate others, to react to other people's manipulation, get caught up in drama of other people. It's very hard to maintain a pure mind when you're around people who are Maybe not trying to keep a pure mind. Buddha said a, 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 a solitary dwelling. And finally, the development of higher states of mind, higher states of consciousness. This is the Bhavana. Bhavana means to develop, to become something more than you are. To do this with the mind, to cultivate confidence, effort, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. And through wisdom to find deliverance, to find freedom. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. So that's the Awada Patimoka. Something useful to know. And that's my talk today. So we can get started on questions if anyone has any questions. Preferably questions about meditation, of course. I don't want us to get too far off track. Ideas to help people who need help with their meditation first and foremost. having some technical difficulties.
I'll just read the questions aloud myself. This isn't a question about meditation, though. Did we not? Did we not get any meditation questions? All right. I told a lie to my boss during my interview. I don't know what it that it affected the outcome. I feel like I was almost unconsciously trying to protect myself. Should I tell him the truth? I think you should, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I can't tell you what to do in your life. It's, your situation is going to be unique to you. But I think in general, when you tell someone a lie, it's a good thing to then correct yourself when you realize that you said something wrong. I think it's beneficial. But you you can't, you know, you, you don't make it better when you, it doesn't erase the lie when you tell the truth. It just corrects the record and creates a better relationship going forward, of course. For practical reasons, people, when they find out that you lied, if you didn't tell them, it can cause greater harm, for example. Chronic ringing in my ears and inter interferes with my practice. Feeling of fear and dread about it doesn't stop, even though I note it. So ringing doesn't interfere; can't interfere with your practice. It's just an experience. So you try and note the ringing, hearing, hearing, and it doesn't interfere because it's an object of practice. You just be mindful of it. Now, fear and dread are hindrances. But they're not just going to stop just because you want them to. That's not the nature of the practice. We don't practice and then magically things go away. We And that's not the reason why we practice. We don't practice to make things go away. We practice to understand things, to see them clearly. And it's the clarity of understanding that's going to make things better. It's going to purify the mind and free us from reactions because we, under, we have better understanding. You wouldn't fear something if you understood it and were familiar with it. It's through lack of understanding that we give rise to things like fear. So try and just understand the fear and understand the ringing. Try and just, and by understand, it just means to become more familiar with it. And it really just means to be able to experience it objectively. So when we say to ourselves, hearing, hearing, we're cultivating that objectivity. And over time, your mind gets accustomed to that and it has a better relationship with it, rather than reacting every time. It gets into the habit of just seeing every time, or in this case, hearing, seeing the hearing, or you know, experiencing the hearing. That's just hearing. How to not to jump around too much from object to object. Sometimes it feels impossible not to. In my entire session, I have little concentration. Well, you would note something like distracted, distracted, but try to always come back to the main object of the breath, the, the stomach, not the breath, the stomach every time. So after you note something for a while, if it goes away or doesn't go away, try and go back to the stomach. And by always coming back to one object, it will help uh, focus you a little bit. On the other hand, we're not trying to stop the mind entirely. We're just trying to be mindful again. So when you're distracted or thinking, say distracted or thinking. Don't worry about concentration as an important reminder. Your, 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 your focus and concern shouldn't be concentration, it should be mindfulness. Concentration ebbs and flows because life is uncertain. Mindfulness is always useful. I feel I've been using the meditation as a mechanism of detachment. Well, I mean, that feeling that you have is just a feeling, so you should note the feeling. If you 
are running from things, you should note that desire to run away or the aversion towards things. But your impression of what the practice is doesn't have any effect on what it actually is. So if you're practicing the meditation as instructed properly, there shouldn't really be any problem no matter what you think of it. Because it's objectively just seeing things as they are. There's no extra baggage. And any extra baggage there is, you're bringing yourself. And so you should note that. you're interested i'd recommend maybe doing an at-home meditation course at least reading our booklet on how to meditate learning how to practice in this tradition it might help you courses are all free we're not this isn't this isn't me hooking you in to make money or something i don't even touch money use money If we can only do one, should we do formal meditation before or after breakfast? Well, right after you. No, either way, either one. Before or after. You know, the Buddha said, sometimes after you eat, as an example, you think to yourself, boy, during the time I was eating, that was uh, quite uh, stressful, you know, stressful in a positive way, but it, it was quite... Um, quite an, an activity, busy. Eating is a busy activity. Your mind gets busy, your tongue gets busy, your mouth gets busy, your stomach gets busy, your hands get busy, your eyes get busy, your nose gets busy smelling the food. So sometimes you think, boy, I ate a lot, now I'm tired, I should take a break. And the Buddha said, no, you should think, instead you should think, why I ate, and during the time that I ate, I wasn't very easily able to be mindful. So now that I'm done, now that I'm finished eating, I should reduplicate my effort, reduplicate, redouble, redouble my efforts. I don't remember what the word is. Redouble. I should increase my effort, work that much harder. So right after you eat is a good time to do walking meditation. But you can do it before you eat as well. It's also good. Should do well. You eat as well, chewing and so on. I sometimes react with, "So what? So what? I don't know. Thinking. I don't know. Is there is there an emotion involved? So what? Is are you bored? If you're bored, you should not bored. Bored. If you dislike it or something." you're confused you should not confuse can you elaborate on not indulging thoughts versus letting them come up specifically in regards to lust I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. I mean, I don't have much to say. There's nothing special about it. You just, thoughts are thoughts. Um, I mean, be clear that a thought is just a thought. A thought doesn't have the emotion in it. So it's up to you whether you bring the emotion to the table. So you have to separate them out and, and your feelings and you separate them out as well. Just try and note whatever is clearest to you. Note that one thing. And we're not trying to control, we're just trying to see clearly. So we're not trying to stop thoughts from coming, not even trying to stop emotions from coming. That doesn't work. We're just trying to see it all clearly. And the clarity, it, it organizes things and it creates strength of mind and clarity of mind. You do away with all the cloudiness and the delusion that things that aren't going to satisfy you might actually satisfy you. We do away with all that ignorance and delusion. How do you watch the breath without manually controlling it? 
So you you don't control it per se, but you you the mind wants to control it. The mind becomes stressed about it. That's really what happens is the mind becomes stressed and there's a tension. The body becomes stressed as a result of the mind becoming stressed. So you should note all of that. If you're stra- tense, you should note tense. If you're stressed or worried and so on, you should note that. Liking or disliking, you should note that. The whole idea of controlling is a bit misleading because it's not exactly what happens. Just try and note the experiences, the tension and the stress and so on. And when people ask this question, the idea in the mind is that some way you should be able to control yourself to not control because you know controlling is wrong, which is ridiculous, right? Because if we know that controlling is wrong, then controlling not to control is also wrong. That should give you some idea about the, the direction you should be headed. Even trying not to control is still trying to control. Are there any downsides to spending too much time in solitude? I mean, it depends on the person is the answer. Solitude alone isn't going to make someone enlightened, but solitude for someone who is equipped to practice will benefit from solitude, will benefit from that solitude. So a, a person who is not equipped will maybe even get worse through solitude. And they should rather uh, be in touch with a teacher or community. In fact, in general, having a having a secluded dwelling shouldn't mean that you don't have a community. In the community, people are secluded, you see. So it's not an either or where you either shun people or you live you live uh, in communal society with them. No. A society should be one of seclusion, where everyone is committed to seclusion, not bothering each other. Hello? Oh. No, my sound's okay. Did you lose my sound? Did you get the answer to that last question, Chris? No, I don't hear Chris either. Can you hear me? When does noting become judgment? Like if I'm feeling bored, should I note bored or thinking? If you're bored, you should note bored. I don't quite understand the question. I mean, it's fairly simple. It's not like if you note bored, you're suddenly judging something as boring. It would be wrong to say boring, boring. That would be wrong, you see. But bored is a is the state of mind that you're in. If you're in that state, so then you note that state. I have been having difficulty letting go of someone I deeply care for. How do I let go? This is again this problem with how do I let go as though you could 
control yourself to let go, but letting go isn't like that. Letting go is really letting go. So you don't, it's not something you do because then it would be not letting go, it would be forcing, it would be the opposite of letting go. So you're having difficulty because you're you're, you're trying to let go. And you, you tr letting go isn't something that comes from trying. Letting go is something that comes from understanding. That's what comes from understanding. So when you deeply care for someone, you note that. You don't try to get rid of it. You don't try to let go. It's kind of kind of oxymoronic to think that you could try to let go in that sense. Just try and note it, see it clearly, and when you become familiar with it, it will lose its hold over you. By noting everything, isn't there a danger of relying too much on language? I don't understand what the danger is. Relying on language. I guess you're in, you're you're implying that somehow that takes you away from. I don't know. No, there is no danger. Language isn't like a drug. After practicing meditation for a while, I somehow feel some resistance towards meditation. Is this normal? We're not interested in what is normal. We're interested in what you experience. So if you feel a resistance, that's what you experience. And so you would just note angry, disliking, disliking, not angry. But if you dislike the meditation or averse to it, disliking or averse or so on. My practice has become pretty stale and laborious. It feels like a chore, including informal mindfulness. Any advice? Well, that should be the object of your, your practice. I mean, that's quite exciting, actually. The feeling like a chore is, is a reaction, and that's a part of your psyche, because for other people, they don't have that. You see, that's not an objective state of mind that has nothing to do with the actual experience of practicing meditation because what does it mean to practice meditation there's very little involved but the baggage that you add to it that's the problem so meditation is here showing you something about yourself how you judge and react to things and develop aversion towards things you should be very mindful of that you'll find it's quite liberating because that's the whole reason for practicing, is to see those things and to overcome them. See clearly. When I lose track of noting and get lost in thoughts after some time, I realize I'm lost in thoughts. I notice there is some judgment and get frustrated that I'm not good at this. Well, I mean, you're, you're seeing another part of this, another example of something that's a part of a person's psyche is the, the tendency to judge yourself, get frustrated. So that's what you should expect. Is This is the sort of thing you should expect to see. It shouldn't be surprising. Don't be surprised when this comes. Remember, this isn't meditation to calm your mind and take you away from your problems. It's meditation to help you understand your problems and free yourself from the power they have over you through understanding, through facing, through familiarity, through clarity. So when you're frustrated, just say to yourself, frustrated, frustrated. You'll see, it's very powerful. Don't try and, don't get frustrated about being frustrated, like, oh, I just keep getting frustrated, how horrible is that? No, if you're frustrated, that's interesting, that's a part of who you are, so let's learn about it. Let's try and understand it. I think my audio is back, Bonte. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for taking over. The next question reads, how would you note going up or down from stairs? 
walking. If you want to go slowly, you can note things like pushing, when you push down with the foot and so on, but lifting, placing, pushing, and so on. But you can just say right, left if you're going quickly. I mean, you try and go slowly if you can. Walking upstairs is nice because it's so slow. You can't go too fast anyway. So it's easier to note, more detailed. How do you deal with highly destructive emotions that arise very quickly and completely throw off one's attempts to better oneself? The wonderful thing about mindfulness is it's in the present moment. Whenever you, whenever you um, incline towards it, you can apply it. So it's never too late. How do you deal with it? Well, when you're in a position to be mindful, just be mindful of it whenever that comes. Mindfulness is never too late. It's always now. So don't don't lament at how unmindful you were just a moment ago but if you do then be mindful of that but be mindful of what's happening now how can we increase the aptitude of awareness and mindfulness is it through meditation practice and or following dhamma yes practice it's through practice i am used to meditating with no center rising slash falling and just noting everything since experience never stops how do i know when to return to rising falling and not note the next thing i notice so try after you've noted one thing to go back to the rising and falling there's no rule but generally try to go back to the rising and falling these questions come up because I think people try to make it into a, a, a hard, a set in stone rule. If this happens, do this. But life is not like that. It's think of it as war. When you're training as a soldier, I assume from from the movies I used to watch that uh, there's lots of training and. Uh, it's very regimented and you have rules and structure and routines and order. But I also understand that when you get on the battlefield, it's, it's hell. It's a totally different world and people are urinating themselves and, and bleeding out and there's bombs going off and so on. Life is like that. There's no, you, you can't pin it down to rules, but you have you have principles. And so the principle is that coming back whenever you can to the rising and falling is helpful to keep you focused. So after you've noted something, try and go back to the stomach. If in my native language, it is not possible to express verb-based experience without the reference to the doer, should I refer to myself, I am walking, the mind, he is walking, or something else? I am walking. People ask this question not realizing that the Buddha's words himself, himself were, I am walking. Gachami. Gachami means I am walking. That's how the Buddha said it. That's how he said to know, to acknowledge it. Gachanto wa gachami ti bhajanati. One knows I am walking. There's no problem with using language like that. Language isn't a barrier. It's just a tool. It's just constructs. Just like how thoughts aren't aren't uh, in and of themselves problematic. In seeing an attractive person, there's just too much things involved quickly and intensely. Thinking, feeling, liking, pleasure. The mind jumps and it's impossible to follow everything. What can I do? Just note whatever's clearest. And don't expect to solve all your problems quickly, you know. It takes training. I mean, if you haven't done an at-home course, try and do an at-home course. It might help train you. Eventually, hopefully, people can come and do intensive courses here. Though we're actually moving, I think.
Is mindfulness meditation more about acting enlightened than working towards enlightenment? I'm going to skip this question. I don't quite understand it. Mindfulness meditation is mindfulness meditation. I, w I guess I would say don't worry too much about enlightened enlightenment and so on. It's more about mindfulness meditation is more about mindfulness. Seeing things clearly. I guess I guess part of what you're asking is important, like not working towards some future goal, but just acting in the present. So if that's what you mean, then that's that's what it is, yeah. Has it become more difficult to attain enlightenment in our time, given how much distraction and negative impression surrounds us? I don't really have an answer for that. I guess so, probably. Probably. Mostly we're just farther and farther from the Buddha himself as time goes on. You mentioned mindfulness is not a good translation of sati. Can you please elaborate what is sati? Sati means to remember or remembrance. So the practice that we do is reminding ourselves as we're, we're, we're evoking remembrance. But it's not remembrance of the past, it's remembering things. And it means remembering things for what they are. So when you see, you remind yourself that it's just seeing so that you remember it. You don't forget it. It's a way of speaking that we don't use in English, but it means like if you see something and then you get you you elaborate on it, you extrapolate on that, like it's good, it's bad, it's me, it's mine, and so on. Then you've forgotten. You've you you you're not remembering the actual experience, and so remembering the actual experience puts you back on the experience itself and takes you away from your reactions, puts you in a state of mind where that that's objective and, and seeing clearly. So there's no reactions. That's what sati means. The Buddha put a lot of emphasis on samadhi. As I understand, it is a practice of one-pointed concentration. Can doing noticing practice put us in samadhi? Those are some assumptions. The Buddha put a lot of emphasis on samadhi. I'm... I guess. I don't know if that's exactly true um, in relation to other dhammas. I mean, I would say he put a lot more emphasis on sati. Uh, samadhi is one of the three trainings so that it has a prominent place, but does that really mean samadhi or does it mean something more broad? Because sati is one of the three parts of samadhi, right? Virya, sati, samadhi. In the Satipatthana Sutta, he doesn't even mention samadhi. So in talking about being mindful, which the Buddha called the Ekayanamaga, he doesn't even use the word samadhi. You're, you're, I mean, you're supposed to in, uh, assume that it's there because sati, of course, is part of the samadhi group. And this whole so this whole idea of one-pointed concentration is a part, yes, it's certainly a part of what can be useful and, and conducive towards uh, towards wisdom. But ultimately what the Buddha put emphasis on is wisdom. And so our samadhi has to be the kind of samadhi that can give rise to wisdom. And so this is why we focus on ultimate reality rather than focusing one-pointedly on a single object. We try and focus on our experiences. How, man, how much emphasis did the Buddha put on the, sen the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, saying we should understand them and become what he taught to those 1,250 monks before the Maga Puja, he taught the Adita Pariyaya Sutta. He said everything is burning. The eye is burning, the ear is burning. And he taught to to uh, become dispassionate or dis disillusioned by it, by the eye and the ear and so on, to let go of them.
I want to meditate, but due to the nature of my mind, I find myself not meditating at all. I can be quick to shift moods and struggle not to engage in entertainment. What would you suggest? Associate with people who are meditating and try and be mindful during the day. Don't be discouraged, but just do it when you, when you have a chance, do it. Mindfulness is not something that happens by itself, but it's also not something that you ever lose the opportunity. You know, you never you never lose the opportunity, the ability to practice. So anytime you can engage, anytime you, you choose to, when you decide to practice, you practice. You can do it anytime. When I'm losing control due to sensuality, how can I step back and slow down, mentally speaking? I guess I wouldn't phrase it as stepping back and slowing down that you should do. Not exactly. I mean, you try to uh, be mindful of the experience as best you can. Ultimately, the best thing is to do have a regimen of practice so that when it, when you do get into a situation where you would lose control, you're much better, not in control, but you're much in a better, your mind is in a better place. And so it's less intensely carried away by sensuality. And so it's training, you know, it's not something that you can do at that moment. It's something you have to be good at. Something you have to work at. How does one cultivate confidence in the practice? I guess I would. I, I wouldn't. Probably. I, see, I'd answer this to note. Instead, note when you're doubting it. Don't try and cultivate confidence. Trying to cultivate any one mind state is like trying to move a wheel on a car. You want your car to go forward, so you grab a wheel and you pull. That's basically the idea of what you're trying to do. When you have doubt, you know, doubting, that's like getting in the car and just turning on the engine and driving. You don't have to worry about the wheels or the bumper. It'll all go along with you. How can one deal with feelings of recurring anxiety? Well, if you've read our booklet, maybe take up the practice of mindfulness. Read the booklet if you haven't. Anxiety, as I've said before, is is interesting because of how, well, I mean, it, most states are similar, but with anxiety, it's clear how strong the effect it has on the body. That makes sense. Anxiety has a very strong effect on the body. It's it's glare. It becomes coarse. This tension in the stomach and um, uh, tension in the shoulders, heart beating fast, tension in the head, headaches, and so on. Sweating, lots of physical reactions. And what happens because it's so intense? What happens is you take that. You take the physical aspect as a part of the anxiety, and it makes you more anxious. You react to the physical results of anxiety and it snowballs quite easily. So you have to be able to separate, but it's the same with passion. It's the same with really anything. You have to separate the emotion from the physical and note whatever's clear and just note whatever comes at the moment. Try and see them as separate so you don't react to the physical and create worse mental problems. I noticed that when I catch myself in a certain thought that comes up, it vanishes immediately. Is that seeing it clearly, or is it me trying to stop thinking? Oh, it's vanishing. I mean, yeah, that's a good sign. You're able to see things vanishing, but I wouldn't pay too much heed. That's, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see that things vanish. And so that seeing is very important 
specifically because of how it changes your perception of things. Your perception of things becomes, yeah, things cease, yeah. Everything just vanishes. Reality is, a, is the kind of, uh, is made up of the kind of things that vanish. So instead of thinking, oh, reality is all these things I own, these possessions that last forever, those are all just conceptual realities are experiences that cease and cease. And when you get into that, you stop clinging because your whole framework of what exists is full of things that cease because that's really what exists, right? So seeing again and again how things cease is a very important part of the practice. So it'll be, you can be happy that you experience that, but just don't cling to it, you know. As with anything, don't cling to it. Is it okay to note feeling when I feel that I am doing well, for example, if I also use feeling for feelings in the body? If you feel that you're doing well, that's not what you're feeling. You're maybe liking how you're doing. You know, don't get caught up in language that you miss what's actually happening. Language is only the tool. It's not the actual thing. You're not feeling that you're doing well. You're liking what, how you're doing, probably. So you should not liking. This is an important example of how to differentiate between how you interpret what's happening and what's actually happening. Why is doubt a hindrance? If I doubt that someone will show up to work, for example, is that a hindrance? So their hindrance is, it's just a word, but what it means is they're things that hinder your ability to focus, hinder your, your, your strength of mind. They prevent the mind from, from gathering strength, building up the clarity of mind that required to see clearly. That's, that's what they mean. So anytime your mind has the state of doubt, that's disruptive to the mind. So it's not, a, it's not in a worldly sense, like if you doubt someone will show up to work. It's, it's just that actual state of mind, the doubting is going to harm your focus. That's all. But if you're thinking about someone showing up for work, then well, you're not really meditating anyway. So it's not really in context. Will we lose the gifts from meditating if we stop for a period? Is it use it or lose it, like with building muscles? You'll lose some, but you also gain the the inclination towards it. That, and that inclination is actually quite powerful because of how powerful the meditation is. It can it can follow you from lifetime after lifetime, in fact, not even just in this lifetime. But yeah, you'll lose a lot of it if you just give it up. If you haven't gotten, I mean, it's it's dependent on, on what you've gotten out of it. Is there stages where if you get to a certain stage, you can be pretty clear that that's, gonna, that's deeply affected you to the extent that it's not just going to disappear. All right, it's four o'clock. I have another session. I have an announcement. Are we done? Did I catch it just on time? Uh, yeah, uh, there can be more if you right. have time. No, 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 that's it. Um, so at six o'clock again, there is a monk teaching. I don't know what he's calling it, but um, I'm, I've been invited to take part with all these very venerable and senior monks to discuss suttas together through Zoom. So I will be broadcasting that on YouTube again, only this time I'll try and make sure the audio actually works on my end. And uh, you'll get to see difference of you know different interpretations. Not everyone is in the same uh, school as us, and yeah, everyone has different ideas about things. So, but I'll I'll be talking a bit, so you'll get to hear me talk again. Anyway, just an announcement. If you want to come back in two hours, we should have another session. You'll get to listen in on. So thank you, everyone. Sadhu. Sadhu. Good group today. Have a good week, everyone.